Good morning, Redeemer. Well, if you can, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Isaiah 52. As you know, we've been looking at the Advent this year through the, through the eyes of, of the prophet Isaiah, and we're going to continue that today. So as you're, as you're opening to that, I was, a couple weeks ago, um, Kevin and I were, were going over to visit a family in our church, and uh, we, we arrived at the door, and they had kind of have a big, big glass door at the front. And as we knocked on the door, uh, one of the first thing, one of their young children came, came running to the door, uh, four or five-year-old, and upon seeing us, he turned and excitedly turned around to his parents and excitedly exclaimed, Mom, it's Pastor Jeff and the other guy. <laughs> so... Uh, I think we all know who got confused as Pastor Jeff and who's the other guy. Um, so today, I'm pleased to let you know that uh, filling in for Pastor Jeff is the other guy. Um, some people know me as Pastor Barry. Uh, but today, I have the great privilege and a humbling responsibility to speak on um, one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture. This text has been called the Mount Everest of Messianic Prophecy. Charles Spurgeon called it the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. Now, the ir irony of today is this text, as you probably know, you heard us like Isaiah 53, really, today? I mean, we know this is commonly taught more during Lent, during you know, Easter or, or Good Friday than it is during Christmas or Advent season. But I can tell you that if Advent is celebrated as a season of peace and hope and joy, and love, then I would contend that this text is in fact the wellspring of all of those. So as is our custom, if you're able, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. And we're gonna start in, in a chapter, Isaiah chapter 52, and we're gonna start in verse 13. Verse 13. It says, see my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for they will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. 
punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. And we have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of the oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you, make in him an, when, when you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed and he will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. And yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Pray with me. Father, it's, it's with great humility that I speak today on, on one of the most greatly revered passages in all of Scripture. God, today, would you open our eyes to see the, the stunning and beautiful connection between Advent and the suffering servant of our text today. Father, please open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as... As Christians in America, I think we often, rightly, bemoan the extent to which materialism tends to overshadow the meaning of Christmas. But you know, as I, as I was pondering my message this week, it struck me that I think there may be even a more subtle and probably actually a more dangerous and sinful attitude that we all bring to the Christmas season. And that is the celebration of ourselves. I think of one particular Christmas song in particular that unapologetically boasts of this. It's the most wonderful time of the year with the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you, be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. It's the hap happiest season of all. With those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings when friends come to call. It's the hap happiest season of all. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. There'll be scary ghost stories, whatever that has to do with Christmas. If <laughs> Someone explain that one to me later on, okay? Um, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. You see, 
I think we have subtly come to believe about Christmas is that what really makes Christmas season a season of hope and joy and peace and love is that during this season, we suddenly become better versions of ourselves. Christmas is wonderful because, because we are more generous. We're more loving and kind during this, during this season. I'll, I'll give a confession here. Someone's going to like, there went my man card. But I actually watched some, some of the Hallmark movies. I do. And, and what do we see? This, this, this idyllic, per, everyone's perfect and everyone's beautiful and everyone's happy. And, and I think at Christmas, we want to kind of insert ourselves into the Hallmark movies. That, that want, we want that to become our reality. But please hear me. Christmas is not a wonderful time of the year because the world is suddenly filled with wonderful people all doing wonderful things. Christmas is a wonderful time of the year because 2,000 years ago, a wonderful God displayed his wonderfulness by coming to earth to save really awful people who were hopelessly separated from God and deservedly objects of his holy wrath. And therefore, Christmas is a celebration of a great and wonderful God, not of great and wonderful people like ourselves. I think one of the, one of the ways that we can see this, this beautiful connection of our text today in Advent is through the lens of four powerful but overlooked words in the Advent account of Luke 1. We all know Luke 1 and 2. And at the climax of the angel's annunciation message to Mary, it starts in verse 31 where the angel says, Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will will have no end. Now, I would argue that maybe the most foremost significant words in that passage are, he will be great. He will be great. You see, what follows after those words is a, is a description of the scope of his greatness. And it forces us to think of greatness in a completely different way. I think almost everyone loves to engage in a who's the greatest debate. You hear them all the time. The term goat has become very popular over the last few years. Short for the, the greatest of all time. Many here argue that Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time. Others may argue whether, whether LeBron James or, or Michael Jordan is the basketball goat. Just recently, Kanye West made news by declaring himself, hopefully tongue-in-cheek, the greatest artist that God ever created. <laughs> I still can't say it with a straight face. Sorry, I tried last service and I failed to. Sorry to you Kanye fans out there. Um, you see, we assess greatness by how someone compares to others of a similar skill or talent. But you see, when the angel said that Jesus would be great, he didn't mean that he would just be greater than Caesar Augustus or any other great leader. 
You see, Jesus' greatness can only be described as holy, meaning it's, it's completely other than and set apart. There's no comparison. You, you see a glimpse of this in, in the, the Luke passage I just read. He will reign over the house of Jacob, how long? Forever. And his kingdom will have no end. So just to, to, to prove the incomparableness of Jesus' greatness, you don't have to look any farther than the reigns of other great leaders throughout history. And fortunately, many of them, they consider themselves so great that they actually put the great after their name. So for example, we can look at, at Ramesses, one of the, the great pharaoh of Egypt. And he ruled Egypt for 66 years. Which on most terms, he's probably, of course, he probably started when he was two, but, but regardless, he, he ruled for 66 years, which is impressive compared to, you know, most leaders. But when you compare to forever, it's a flicker. And then you have Alexander the Great, right? The king of Macedonia. How long was he king? 13 years. <laughs> Not so great, is it? <laughs> Constantine the Great was emperor of Rome for 31 years. And then, of course, there's the great Napoleon, emperor of France for a whopping 10 years. You see, the child of Bethlehem would indeed be great like no one has ever been great. You see, my goal today, though, is not to simply bask in the scope of Jesus' greatness as the supreme ruler of the universe? Rather, my goal today is that to the best that my feeble words are able to give you just a glimpse of the root or the source of his supreme greatness. And that is his incomparable love. Philippians 2 gives us a, a clear picture of this, of this cause-effect relationship of Jesus' positional greatness as well as the greatness of his character and compared to it. In the text, it says, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. Verse nine, for this reason, for this reason, God highly exalted him. And he gave him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So for what reason did God the Father highly exalt him? Because he humbled himself. The creator of the universe took on the form of a servant and he became obedient to the point of death, to the point of allowing himself to endure a horrific death on a cross. And worse than that, to absorb the full wrath of a holy God against sin. And why did he do this? Love. Great love. Incomparable love. 
love that is infinitely high beyond the greatest love displayed by any mortal in all of history. And this is the lens through which I want us to see our text today. Most scholars break this text of Isaiah 52 and 53 into five stanzas, three verses each. And so that's the way I want to look at this today. And I want to briefly examine each of these three stanzas. So stanza one, we're going to start with the last three verses of chapter 52. And this stanza serves as kind of a preview or a summary of all of 53. This is the setup to, to 53. That in this, that none will be more successful. God expressed his love through his stunning success. Look at the text. See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him for they will see what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. So right off the bat, we see the exaltation of the suffering servant. He's exalted. Why? Because he's so successful. You find it ironic there that verse one says, he will be successful and he'll be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted, followed by his appearance was so disfigured that he didn't even look like a man. Quite a contrast, isn't it? So how is that? How is he possibly successful? Successful at what? Well, the answer we see in verse 15. What was he successful at? Sprinkling many nations. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you have, if you have any knowledge of the Old Testament, you probably know that sprinkling is a word that's used to des- describe atonement or sacrifice. We have known from the, from the beginning that the penalty of sin is death. For someone to be forgiving, forgiven, something or someone has to die. The picture of this in the Old Testament is people offering unblemished animals to the temple where the priest would then slaughter the innocent animal and what would he do? He would sprinkle its blood on the altar to show that the price of sin had been paid. But if you look at Hebrews 10, we learn this about the Old Testament sacrifice system. It says that this sacrificial system was simply a shadow of good things to come. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what was the good thing to come? The suffering servant unblemished, unblemished in every possible way and yet he would be slaughtered as verse 14 describes and his blood successfully sprinkled for the sins of people from every nation and every generation. Incomparable love. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Stanza two. 
none more humble. None more humble. Chapter 53, one through three, we see the incomparable greatness of God's love described and displayed through his humility. Listen to it. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. See, the beauty of Christmas story is that Jesus didn't come to earth as the, as the conquering emperor to rule over us. The beauty of Christmas that he came as a lowly child. He was born to a, to a nobody mother from a, from a nobody town of, of Nazareth where they said, where does anything good come from here? He was born in an animal trough on the outskirts of the insignificant village of Bethlehem. So it is any wonder that as our text says, we didn't believe what the Lord was revealing to us? How could we? That was the plan. He didn't come so that he would be worshiped and adored here. He came here to be slaughtered and his blood sprinkled for the atonement of our sins. Scripture says he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. To become the unblemished sacrifice we needed, he had to be fully God to be completely unblemished by sin. And yet he had to be fully human so that we would not desire him or worship him, but rather we would despise him, reject him, turn away from him, not value him. His incomparable love was displayed in his incomparable humility. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Spread his praise from shore to shore. How he came to pay our ransom through the saving cross he bore. Stanza three. Verses four through six. None more afflicted. If Isaiah 52 through 53 is indeed the Mount Ephrath of Messianic prophecy... Then four through six is the summit. This is the crown jewel of the gospel. This is the epicenter. This is why we're here today. It's why we're singing. It's why we worship. This is why we can have hope and peace and joy at Christmas. This is why this is indeed the most wonderful time of the year. As I read this again, I pray that you feel the full weight of the words he him and his as it relates to the words our, we, and us. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. 
But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've all turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Redeemer, I gotta tell you, if, if those words, if you can read those words and they have never, they have never buckled your knees, they have never misted your eyes, I, I don't know how you can truly understand the gospel. Of course, I think the great barrier to these verses is that maybe we can embrace the words he, him, and his statements. We all love those, don't we? But instinctively, we tend to minimize. Or for many, we outright reject the our, we, and us parts. But you gotta hear me. Half the gospel is not the gospel, amen? You can't possibly rejoice at the stunning depths of God's love unless you're willing to fully acknowledge the stunning depths of your own depravity and sinfulness. And this means that you have to be able to read our, we, and us as me, my, and I. Yet he himself bore my sicknesses. And he carried my pains. But I, in turn, regarded him stricken. I regarded him struck down by God and afflicted. And yet he was pierced because of my rebellion. He was crushed because of my iniquities. Punishment for my peace was on him. And I am healed by his wounds. I went astray like a lost sheep and I have turned to my own ways. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of me. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person. Though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, far surpassing all the rest. It's an ocean full of blessing in the midst of every test. Stanza four, verses seven through nine. God expressed his incomparable love through none more restrained. 
This stanza displays the incomparable greatness of the Messiah's love through his unfathomable restraint. I want to read this section to you in a, in a, in a modern English translation. It says, he was treated badly, but he never protested. He said nothing. Like a lamb being led away to, to be killed. He was like a sheep that makes no sound as its wool is being cut off. He never opened his mouth to defend himself. He was taken away by force and judged unfairly. The people of his time did not even notice that he was killed, but he was put to death for the sins of his people. He had done no wrong to anyone. He had never even told a lie, but he was buried among the wicked. His tomb was with the rich. Now to even begin to understand the incredible love displayed through Jesus' silence and restraint at his trial, at his crucifixion, we have to try to grasp what he was willingly choosing to do on our behalf. You see, we, we rightly ponder the gruesome torture of the crucifixion that he willingly endured. But the wrath of men that he endured that day didn't hold a candle to the wrath of God that he absorbed. We often assume that, that they're one and the same, but they're not. There have been millions of people throughout history that have suffered horrifically torturous deaths but none like Jesus. People have been in prison for years and terrible conditions, and yet it didn't compare to the three hours that he spent on that cross. Why? We've got to get this. What did he endure? We know from the New Testament accounts that, that beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, just prior to his arrest, that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He told his disciples, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. One account says he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. You see, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him over the next hours and days. He knew every second of everything that was about to happen to him. And it led him to, to, to literally bleed drops of blood. And it says, going a little farther, he fell face down. And he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And we know from Old Testament passages that the cup here referred to the wrath of God. Jeremiah 25 is truly a, a terrifying chapter in the Bible. And it starts with a section about the wrath of God in verse 15 when it says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So you see, the crucifixion itself was not the full cup of God's wrath. But if it wasn't, then what was the full cup? Fortunately, we don't have to wonder. Because Jesus hauntingly expressed it shortly before he died. When he cried out, my God, 
my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, more excruciating than all the horrors of the cross was that God turned his back on his beloved son. When our sins were laid upon him, Jesus felt the full horrible truth of Habakkuk 1.13 that says that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. The worst torture endured by the, by the greatest martyr may have endured similar pain but they never experienced God turning his back on them. That was incomparable. To understand as we think of, think of the book of Numbers, contains maybe what we consider the greatest blessing in scripture. We all know it. We've all probably had it said to us. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor, with look with favor on you and give you peace. So if the greatest blessing we can experience is to have the Father look on us with favor, then it stands to reason that the greatest curse is for the Father to turn his back on us in abandonment. Author and pastor Thabiti Anabwile, I practiced that. Put it this way. <clears throat> he says, the Lord Jesus continually sought the Father's face. He sought to live in a way that earned the Father's approval and favor. And he did perfectly. But on that dark midday on Golgotha, when the sun refused to shine, the unimaginable and the indescribable happened that beautiful, shining, loving face of the Father withdrew into the dark, frowning, punishment, punishing face of wrath. At three o'clock that dark Friday afternoon, the Father turned his face away. And the ancient, eternal fellowship between Father and Son was broken. As divine wrath rained down like a million Sodom Gomorrahs and in the terror and agony of all of that moment, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then moments later, when Jesus cried out, it is finished. Make no mistake, this wasn't an admission of defeat Rather, this was a triumphant proclamation that he had, in fact, emptied the cup of God's wrath. As Charles Spurgeon so beautifully put it, he drank damnation dry. So you see, when we consider that Jesus had complete foreknowledge of what he would experience that day on Calvary's hill, he knew he would experience for the first time in all of eternity his father turning his back on him. Now we can begin to get a glimpse of why he was in such anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane and why we should also be 
drop jawed awed to read that while he was beaten, while he was falsely tried, while he was ultimately crucified, and while the father turned his back on him, and yet he never protested. He said nothing. And he never opened his mouth to defend himself. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Mighty Savior, precious friend, you will bring us home to glory where your love will never end. And that leads us to stanza five, verse 10 through 12 which answers the greatest question of all. Why? Why would God be willing to abandon his beloved son? And why would Jesus willingly allow himself to endure such horror? And the answer begins to take shape in the first sentence of verse 10, which has to be one of the most stunning, hard to get your head around verses in all of scripture. Verse 10, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Now, sadly, I think most churches and pastors avoid this verse like it contained swine flu. I was an adult before I heard this the first time and, and, and I, I thought he misread it. I mean, surely, surely it doesn't mean what it says, right? Maybe it's a crazy typo. But fortunately, the rest of the stanza brings the much-needed context to this shock and awe statement. What comes right after that? When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. So here is where we begin to see the why of all of this. Why was God pleased to crush his son? Because by making Jesus a guilt offering or by crushing him, he would accomplish the Lord's pleasure. And what was the Lord's pleasure? Not crushing his son. His pleasure was so that he would see his seed and prolong his days. So we're getting closer. We now, we, we, we know, we just need to know from this who is his seed? And secondly, how will he see him or prolong his days if he's severely crushed? Here's where we start smelling the gospel. Verse 11. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. After his anguish, he will see light. Sounds like the resurrection, doesn't it? Resembles Jesus calling his shot prior to Passion Week where he said, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And why did he say it was necessary? And how does this lead to him being satisfied? Well, the answer is in verse 11, which is the crown jewel of this entire text. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many 
and he will carry their iniquities. By his knowledge. That means that that the Godhead didn't stumble on this plan. They weren't trying to make the best of a bad situation here. They They weren't turning lemons into lemonade. This wasn't plan B. This was the perfect execution of a perfectly designed plan that took shape before time began. And what was the plan? Well, we all sing it every Christmas, don't we? Peace on earth and mercy mild. That was the plan. My righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. God's justice and God's love became one. Throughout scripture, we read of God's desire to have for himself a people where he would be their God and and they would be his people. But a perfectly holy and just God can't simply wink at the death-deserving sins of a rebellious sinner or he wouldn't be just. And yet rightly punishing our guilt means that God had to turn his face away from us in eternal separation and damnation. Thus the great conundrum. An insurmountable gulf between us and God. Until, of course, he made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God the great exchange, the insurmountable gulf perfectly bridged for all who God beckons to cross it. And then finally, lest we think that Jesus was was just a reluctant but obedient martyr who gave everything and received nothing, we have to consider the words of Hebrews 2.3. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Stunning. What could possibly lay before him that could make him say, for this I will endure the incomparable suffering of my father's wrath? And the answer is verse 12. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as the spoil because he willingly submitted to death and he was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and he interceded for the rebels. Because there was none more humble, because there was none more afflicted, because there was none who showed more restraint, therefore there is none more exalted. We are the many. We're the mighty. We're his spoil. Get your arms around that. For the joy of redeeming a people from every tribe and nation who for all of eternity would call, he would call his bride, us. Why? 
Scripture says, so that in the coming ages, why did he do this? So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness in Christ Jesus. Because he's so spectacular, he says, I want you guys to enjoy this, to just be awed by this through all of eternity. And for the joy of that, I'll do it all. I'll drink the cup. Incomparable love. So the next time you read the Christmas story and you come across the angels, angels' proclamation that he will be great. I pray that it leads you to instinctively think of Isaiah 53 and it indeed fills your heart with great joy, great peace, and great hope as you remember just how incomparably great is his love for us. I love the ways it's expressed in one of the great hymns. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the spectacular message of Isaiah 53. As we stand on this side of the fulfillment of this process, prophecy, God, it should, it should flood our hearts with worship that the story of redemption is not just a breathtaking story. It is our breathtaking story. You paid the penalty for rebels like me. You, you accept the unacceptable like me. You declare the guilty like me, like us, to be innocent not guilty and righteous. So Father, today, would you move our hearts this Christmas season to love and light of the great love shown to us. God, may we forgive and light of what we have been forgiven. And God, would would our generosity this Christmas season flow in light of the incredible great gift that has been given to us by him who is indeed great. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.